0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and see a, see a new book and start this uh, next book that we're going to go through, the book of Judges, and ask you to guide and lead us as we look at it In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be starting the book of Judges. It's a history book about Israel. It goes from the period of Joshua all the way to the end of Samuel's reign as judge, uh, Actually, Eli's reign, and then Samuel will be judge for a while, and then King Saul will take over. And uh, so it takes a good period of time. It, uh, we don't know who wrote the book. Uh, it's an unknown, unknown author. Tradition says that Samuel wrote it, but we can't stand too strong on that, but it's believed that Samuel might have written It covers a time of 15 different judges. All right? <coughs> And I haven't actually tried to sit down and calculate how many years it covers because I'd have to. it doesn't give you enough. It tells you how long they lived in peace after each judge, but it doesn't tell you how long they lived in captivity between the judges. So you can't really get a good feel for it. But with 15 judges, most of them reigned 20 to 30 years, you're talking about a pretty good, good period of time. So, so they, were supreme judges. <laughs> supreme, you know, they were the judges of the people. And this is a time when Israel... Did not have a king. God was ruling over them as in direct rule. And then when they would get themselves in trouble, he would send them a, basically a hero to come and rescue them. Did they ask for a judge? No? Yeah, well, they asked for a king later on. They asked for deliverance each time. Well, they didn't ask for judges. He not necessarily. God just sent judges. Sent judges. judges they asked for deliverance. Oh, uh, the book is broken out. In the first two chapters, It's just a statement of how things were going after Joshua died. And remember when we ended Joshua last week, it said that in all the days that Joshua was alive and all those that lived during his time, Israel did what was right before God. So we're going to have a quick review of that on Judges and then watching as people start coming in that aren't following after God. And a very quick succession, less than probably 40 years because it said the people that were alive during Joshua's time Uh, Then we follow through verses 3, chapters 3 through 16. We have the period of the judges where there's several apostasy activities. Most notes say seven, but I think it would be more because every time they sin, God brought a judge in. So there's 15 judges if you count them. So I think there's 15 apostasies, even though they're not real. They're not named real strong and they're not really told what they did in some of them. But there wouldn't have been any reason for God to judge them if they didn't go apostate. Apostate means to be ill, religious or go against the doctrines that you've been taught. And, uh, and then we end up with uh, the last four chapters, 17 through 21, is going to be a period of confusion and anarchy. As the people are getting further and further away from God, we get into a greater and greater anarchy at this period. Culminating as we get in, when we get to First uh, Samuel, the people eventually rejecting the judges and saying, We want a king. Is the picture of this book? It is several cycles of humans do, disobeying God, doing what humans do, disobeying, going into and fail, failing, and then being judged. And then, after a period of time under their judgment, they finally decide, We need God. And they pray to God. And God delivers them through the agency of some hero or a judge, you know, that becomes a judge. And the interesting thing is the cycle is always the same. They sin, get judged, call for repentance. But the way God delivers them is different every single time. Even though he delivers them through people, each one of them deliver in a different way. And this is something that I think God is putting in our in our forefront of our mind is, when he acts, he doesn't act the same way all the time. He will do things different, and many times churches will get into this habit. God did a great miraculous something or other 10 years ago, and they'll keep trying to do what they did 10 years before to try to get the same response from God, and God's saying, no, that was me working. It wasn't you, and be at rest and see how I'm going to do this. I'll hear people say, well, I used to do this, stu- this and I was so successful and now it doesn't work anymore. Well, it never was you in the first place. It was God. Just let God do what he wants to do through you. And, you know, it's human nature. We, we say it worked in the past. It's got to work in the future. And God says, no, if it's spiritual, it's him doing it and it ne- won't necessarily work in the future. And we see this happen oftentimes. Churches have some great big revival and then they'll package it up all neat and sell it to other churches. This is how you have a revival. And most churches don't have revival through those packages they buy. You know, they're not bad, They're not, but they're not the great thing that it was for that church because God's way of doing things is different with each event because he is different. He is fresh. He is new. He's not going to... He's not going to do the deliverance of Ehud that we're going to study every single time. He's not going to do the deliverance that Gideon did. And we all know the story of Gideon and his, you know, his 300 that chased off the, the entire army. It won't be the Deborah and Balak. You know, every time it's something different. And even when Jesus was ministering, he kept doing things different. You know, One time he healed somebody by just touching their eyes. Another time he picked up dirt and spit it and it made clay. And, and a mud pack for him, and they got their sight. Another time, he said, "Go wash your eye." You know, he did it differently each time. Why? I believe it's because he knew he knew us. If every time he healed somebody, he spoke it, spoke to them, then I could guarantee you there would be the ministry of speaking healing. Okay. okay, that's the only way you could get healed. If every time he healed the blind person, he spit in you know picked up mud and spit in it, there'd be the. Yeah, here's how you heal blindness. Everybody who's blind, come and we'll spit in the mud and put a put a mud pack on you, will be healed. You know, so Jesus purposely did things differently. Huh? That would be my least favorite <laughs> That would be your least favorite ministry? <laughs> yeah. No, 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 not my, my least favorite ministry. It okay, we'll you spit it in the mud. But we, we see this this book. It starts out with great victories in battle. Very quickly... They go into failures, and they start getting their judgments, and that goes in cycles, and the book ends with the tribe of Benjamin almost being wiped out because of their sin and the people's reaction against it. So it is a book that goes into progressively deeper and deeper sins before it finally comes to an end. starts out high and ends up at a a low spot. And that's the way some of our... Our lives can be, if we don't finish well, we start out well with God. We minister. We, we're excited about him. And over time, a lot of times, we lose our love for God and our if, you know, excitement for God. And we start living pretty much the way the world lives. And this is something that Paul said, I have finished the race well. And he encouraged both Titus and Timothy, both he encouraged, run the race, keep faithful. And our goal should be to keep faithful to the, to the race and just keep moving forward for God. And we learned that in our Sunday school last week. Okay. Hebrews 12, 1 says, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's the very end of it. Yeah. And that's so important. And the thing about that race is to remember that it's new. Each time, each day is to be new. God gives new mercies, new information, and uh, his word is new every morning. Uh, If we think about this, you know, if you were going in and you had a bushel of apples and you ate an apple once a week, one apple a week out of that bushel, before you got to the end, you probably wouldn't want to eat the apples anymore. Not because you didn't like the taste of the apples, but if you were only eating one apple out of the bushel every week, the apples were going to go bad before you get to the end of the apples. And you know, think about this. So many people, especially in Christians, try to consume the same meal from the Bible that they've had so many times, and God says, it needs to be new. They try to go back into, this is what worked before. When I had this bad place, I did this and I got out of it. Well, you surrendered to God, hopefully, you got out of it. And then God did miraculous actions to get you out of it. So it's very interesting to watch our life and don't get stuck in a rut with God, because God's going to say, I want to, I'm going to do stuff new. I'm going to keep bringing a fresh anointing upon you, a fresh knowledge on you. It's why I love getting into God's word and seeing how new it is. And I've told you so many times, I read a chapter, and I've read, I've read through the Bible so many times in my life. And it's like, you know. and I've told you a lot of times, I'll go, God, when did you put this verse in here? I've never seen it before. And you know what? I probably haven't seen it. You know, I've seen it, I've read it, but I never took notice of it before. And a lot of times, that's what God does in our life. He says, this is what I want you to pay attention to this time. You know, you know, this level of love was good for this person, but I want you to go deeper in love. And I'm going to take you further in love and further into forgiveness, further into grace. And whatever we've done in the past is playing in the shallows. And God's goal for us is to get us out of the you know, one foot of water down, out into the deep water where we can swim and, and have that uh, activities going on. And yet, so many of us want to just play in the shallows. You know, so, some, some Christians don't even want to play in the shallows. They want to play on the beach. You know, not even get into the water. You know, they just want to stay on the beach. They don't even want to get in the water. And then they don't want to get in, you know, and they don't want to go further and further with God. And God is saying, I want you fully in. I want you to be totally covered with my word and learning from my word. And we're going to see this cycle all through Judges as we go through it. All right. Judges. Joshua wasn't a judge. I mean, he, he did not he have the title up, of judge, but he did what judges are going, he, he did what all, judge is going to do. The, he did all the, Yeah. All the. the judges of Israel ruled Israel as their leader. Right. And God raised them up. So he wasn't officially a judge. Right. Did, he, had all, he, he did all the job that a judge is going to do. And... You know, really he did because he helped. He was their hero. He delivered them you know, from their enemies, and they honored him. Uh, okay, Judges chapter 1, unless there's any other comments on the introduction. <laughs> Verse 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up before us against the Canaanites, first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot that we may fight against the Canaanites and likewise will, and I likewise will go with you into your lot. So Simeon went with him and Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the per- Perizzites and, into their hand and they slew them in Bezek, 10,000 men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and they fought against him and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And the Adonaibechite fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adam said, Threescore and ten kings, having their thumbs and great toes cut off, gather their meat under my table, as I have done. So God hath acquitted me. And they brought him into Jerusalem, and there he died. All right, so we see Joshua's dead, and they immediately continue the battle. And remember we said in Joshua the tribes had not got rid of all the enemies over those years. They, they put them into subjection. They, put them, they, they made them vassals of them. They paid taxes, and they were doing servants' work for them. But they didn't kill all of the people. And remember, God had told them, when you go in, I'm going to drive them out, and you will kill all that are there and take possession of their land. And they did not do what they were told they did partial obedience. And then we've got to understand with God partial obedience is not obedience. And for most of us when we were raising our kids what we wanted from our kids when we gave them a job was obedience. We didn't want partial obedience. Well I cleaned half the refrigerator dad. No I asked you to clean the whole refrigerator. Half the refrigerator still stinks. Get it it cleaned. God is looking for us, and so often we do partial obedience and not totally follow Him and depend upon Him. And we see that's what they did when they went into the promised land. They did partial obedience. Some did better than others, but none of them got rid of all their people, which were going to be a snare to them later on. So this one starts out with Judah and Simeon going to battle, and they went up, and Simeon, you know, they they went to the Lord, and they did, they're still following God at this point. They're going to God and saying, God, what should we do next? All right? Uh, remember, jo- in the book of Joshua, there were several times where Joshua forgot to go before God and bad things happened. Well, so far, they've learned their lesson. God, who, who's going to lead us now? They said, okay, Judah. Judah goes to battle. And if you don't know, is going to be the tribe of the king comes from, the tribe that David comes from, is the tribe of Judah. And... Uh, he says, "Okay, Simeon, you go with me and they fought against the Canaanite and the Pezites, and they won and they drew and they killed 10,000 men." And then they chased the king, I'm not going to read his name again. <laughs> and they fought against him when he ran away and they got hold of him and they cut off his big thumbs and his and his big toes. Now, one of the things I really wonder is why did they do, you know, why did they humiliate him instead of killing him like they should have done? but they decided he was going to humiliate, you know, they wanted to humiliate him. And I think part of it is from his answer, he goes, I've done this to 70 kings, you know, I guess I'm getting what I deserve. You know, and he says, 70 kings have a, ha, having their thumbs and great toes cut off, gathering their meat under my table, as I have done, so God has requited me. Okay, basically I've done it to so many, I guess it's time for me to get it. And, you know, and it says that he went, they took him into Jerusalem and he died there. And this is something that's kind of, sad to think about, they are still not being wholly obedient to God. God says, kill all of them and they don't kill all of them. When we get to the story of Saul, he's going to have the king that he's supposed to be killing and he doesn't kill the king. And he tells God, well, I've done, I've done what you've told me to do. You know, and Samuel goes, well, why is the king here and why are all these sheep bleeding and cattle mowing? because he was supposed to kill all the animals, too, in that battle. And he goes, well, the people kept the animals to sacrifice, and I just uh, you know, thought I could kill him later. And you know, obedience is so important to God. Because Samuel's answer to Saul at that time was, God requires obedience more than sacrifice. God wants us to be obedient to him. Now, if we are obedient, we will sacrifice to him. But it's for the right motive. Saul was trying to say, God, you want the sacrifices? I'll give you the sacrifices, but my heart's going to be far from you. And oftentimes, we can do that as well. God, I've been reading my Bible every day. It's only practice in in duty. I'm reading it. I'm not learning anything from it. I'm supposed to read my three chapters according to the schedule. I'm reading my three chapters. God, I came to church. Didn't want to be there. Just sat there like a bump on the log. Didn't, Didn't worship. Didn't really listen. But I was there. Oftentimes, we get to that way with God. God, I'm going through the rituals of serving you. you know, and this is something we have to be very, very careful of. What is God looking for? He's looking for true, heartfelt obedience. Not just sitting there doing a whole bunch of rituals. And, and you know, as I say this, we, we all probably have been there. God, I've got to do this. I've got to get my prayer time in. I've got to get my Bible reading in. I've got to get to church. I've got to speak to three people each day or whatever is on your list. We can get wrapped up in this. I've got to do these things because somehow those are what makes me spiritual. And there's nothing wrong with anything that I named. But if all I'm doing is reading my Bible to check off the box saying I read my three chapters today, might as well not do it. Because you're not learning, you're not spending time with God, because we need to come before God and say, God, show me what you want me to see today. Help me to learn what you want me to learn, and help me meditate on what you want me to learn. And then we read the book, and we find the verses that he wants us to meditate on, and we think about them all day long. I mean, better off just reading one line. Better off reading one line with the right attitude than, yeah, yeah. than three or four chapters that are just like, could have been any book off the, out of the library that you're reading. Uh, now that doesn't mean your goal shouldn't be to read more chapters, but if all you're doing it for is the purpose of checking off a box of "I've done my duty," it's the wrong motivation. If all I'm doing when I come to church is checking off the box "I came to church," it's the wrong motivation. So you go through the Going through the motions. A lot of people go, just go through motions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> lip service, going through the motions. Everybody thinks you're a really spiritual person because you can say, hey, I read my, I read my Bible every day. I've, I've been to church every time the doors are open. How is God changing your life? How is he getting you into you and making your life different? And I think all those things are important. I think coming to church is important, okay? But not just to check off that box saying, I went to church. Come to learn. Huh? Come to learn, come to be with the body, be edified, have, be taught, you know, worship God, and say, I'm going to come in here to do this for God. You know, learn reading your Bible. Again, if you're just reading it to check off a box, you might as well be reading Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz or any other, you know, War and Peace, whatever. If all you're doing is reading the book, you know, reading the Bible to check off a box, it's just a piece of literature. And it's not doing you a whole lot of good. It probably does you a little more than those other books because it is God's word. And he says his word does not return void. But it's not doing you any good for that particular day. You know, you're not finding something to meditate on. You're not finding something to say, this is what I need. When we come to the church, we worship, we sing songs, we praise God, we share with others what God is doing. You know, this is the greatest blessing that we have by coming together. In Hebrews, we're told, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, and so much more as we see the day approaching. And we get closer and closer to the end days. We need the church more and more. And as we need the church more and more as Christians, we hear more and more people saying, well, I don't need the church. I can can go worship God as a lone ranger, and I'll be okay. Well, the problem is you won't be okay. If you're trying to worship God on your own way, in your own strength, you're going to die. You really will die spiritually. And the picture that is often used is you take that glowing ember out of the middle of a fire and set it on the rock on the side. It doesn't take long for, the rock, uh, for that glowing ember to quit glowing, and it will go dead long before the, the fire does. And that's the way it is for us as Christians. If we want to separate ourselves, God says, yep, yeah, you can, you know, technically, yes, you can worship God on your own. The problem is you won't be doing it for long. Because everything gets in the way. You know, how often does the important things of life get in the way of what God is asking us to do? And you know, it's very important. If, if you're starting to read your Bible, I can guarantee you all kinds of important things are going to pop up in front of you that need to be taken care of right that moment. Right that moment, you're reading it in the morning, you've got to get your coffee, you've got to get, your, you've got to get the news fix, you've got to get the newspaper, you've got to do this, you've got to do this before long you realize you haven't read your Bible because all these important things that just couldn't wait get in your way. God, I really need to learn to, I need to spend time praying. Well, as soon as you start trying to pray, the phone's going to ring or something's going to happen and take you away from what you're doing unless you make his following a real priority in your life and say, God, I want to be with you. And, you know, we, we know that whatever is important to us, we'll make time to do it. And I've shared this with you on, You know, I've heard people tell me they're really, really busy, but they got tickets to a game that they just had to go to, a sports game. All of a sudden, they found time to go to that sports game. They found money to go to that sports game. It became very important to them to be able to use those tickets they were given, but couldn't find time for God, couldn't find time to go to church because there was just so much important going on. And if we find ourselves at that point, then we need to go before God and say, God, help me. Help me get focused back on you. Don't be the, the church that, you know, so Jesus said, I want to spew you out because you're neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. You know, and God wants us to be either hot or cold. Why, why hot? Because that's really what he wants. He wants us to be hot. But, you know, if you're cold, you're so much easier to be reached by God because you know you're in the wrong place. When you're walking that in-between road, you're the, you're the scribes and Pharisees that say, well, hey, we got it all together. We're we, we, we're, we're Okay. Not hot, not really on fire for God, not cold, not walking away from God. And if you've ever walked totally away from God and you get that conviction, it's a lot easier to bounce back from that because you go, God, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And it's much easier to repent. It's much easier to, for you to be reached. The hardest people, even Jesus, for Jesus, was those lukewarm, self-righteous people that thought, hey, I don't need God. I've got, I've got my life all put together. And you know, we want to be careful with that. Verse 8, now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the ch- children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain in the south and in the valley. And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron before was Kerja Arba, and they slew Shishal and Ahimon and Talmai, and from thence he went against the inhabitants of Dever, And the name of Dever before was Kizah Sefer. And Caleb said, he that smites Kirjah Sefer and takes it to him, I will give Aksah, my, my daughter, to wife. And Othel, Othniel, the son of Kizah Caleb's younger brother, took it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass when she came to him that she moved him to ask her father a field, and she lighted off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what will you? And she said unto them, give me a blessing, for you have given me a, a south land. Give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. All right, so we're going more into the battles of, of Judah and specifically who they fought. And it says they took Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem at some point is going to be lost to Israel because David later on is going to refight for Jerusalem and take it back and make it the city, city of the capital for, for the rest of his time, the rest of time. And it says they went down, they fought the Canaanites and in the south and in the valley, and Joshua dist, distru- uh, went against the Canaanites and they slew these various kings. <laughs> then they went up against his other king And then they come to a battle and Caleb says, and remember, Caleb is quite a character because remember in Joshua, he asked Joshua, he says, I want that mountain over there because it is the hardest one to take. The faith of Caleb was an amazing faith. The the man is very old at this point and yet he's going, I don't want to take it easy. I want to see God do something great. And I hope that we can all be like Caleb. God, I want to see you do something great. I'm looking for the revival here in chloride. I'm looking forward to, the, to people's lives being changed. And I watch people in this church and their lives are being changed and seeing how they're being changed and looking forward to what God is going to do. Not saying, God, I just want to sit on my laurels. You know, Caleb was pretty old. He could have just said, okay, I got my land. I'm just going to sit back here and, and, and just take it easy. And yet he says, I'm going to go forward. God, help get this. And getting ready for a battle, and his, you know, he says, whoever takes the city, you know, whoever takes the city will get my daughter's hand in marriage. You know, quite a reward. Saul does this later on, and David David wins his his wife. And we see this over and over. David even gives one of his daughters away in a battle. Uh, you know, feel sorry for the girls, actually. You know, just be rewarded to whoever wins, whether they like them or not is... Doesn't matter. They get a They get a warrior, but that's about all they get, probably. But then she went, went to her father and said, "Hey, you've given us land, but I don't have enough water. You know, give me, give me the springs up there on the mountain as well." You know, this is pretty bold, because remember, at this day, women don't have a lot of rights. You know, for her to even go to her father and say, "Hey, I want. You know, we want more land." is pretty bold he's already given them their inheritance, their portion of the inheritance. And, you know, obviously Caleb loves her because he gives her the land she asked for. But, you know, this is something that we need to think about. In this picture, his daughter is representing us going before God and asking for things. How often do we not get because we don't ask? Jesus says you, you do not receive because you do not ask. Does that mean we'll get every single thing we ask for? Nope. And we'll probably be glad that we don't get some of the things we ask for because sometimes what we ask for is not what's best for us. And we're, we as human beings are really good about asking God for things that are not good for us to have. And God sometimes will say no. But, you know, he is looking to be able to bless us and give us things as long as we will wait on him to give it to us. You now, in our day and age, people don't wait. They have pieces of plastic gives them instant gratification. Paying on it for the rest of their lives, but they have instant gratification. You need, a, you need a new car? Don't save up for your car. Just go out and buy a car and pay on it for, for eight years. You want a house? Go out and buy your house and pay on it for 30 years. You know, and God is saying, you know, I'm looking to bless you. I'm looking to give you great rewards if you will just trust me. Now, if God leads you in that direction, be my guest and do those things. But he says that are, if you are a borrower, you are subject and a servant to your lender. That's what it tells us in Proverbs. Why? Because you have to pay that person if you're going to be moral and ethically right. You have to pay that person whether you can afford to or not. You're, you, God requires you to pay them. Now, we can go bankrupt and the government can say, well, we're going to tell you you don't owe them, but God says you still owe them. You still owe them. You took out; they gave you a loan on good faith, and you don't get out of it by just having the government say you don't owe the money. And this is a serious issue. In our day and age, we got people go, build, piling up debt, then going bankrupt, and then they start the process all over again. They pile up debt and go bankrupt again. I, I've met people who've gone bankrupt three or four times in their lifetime. I'm not talking about rich people doing businesses. I'm talking about everyday citizens who should never have accumulated enough debt to go bankrupt in the first place, and they pile up the debt, and then they go bankrupt, leaving the lenders holding the bag. And people will go, well, they know that they're going to have a certain amount of bad debt. Yes, that still doesn't make it right. still doesn't make it right according to God. And especially for us as Christians, we should be people of our word. And so he gives her this blessing. She asks for it. He gives it to her, the upper and the lower springs. You've got both of them. And, you know, God wants to bless his children. He is a good father. You know, he said in one of the places, would a man, if a son asks his father for a a fish, will he give him a serpent? And he says, absolutely not. And the point is, if we as human beings will do what is right, what will God as our father do? He owns everything. If we will use it to honor him, what blessings would God give us? Problem is, too often we want to devour the stuff on ourselves. <laughs> you, know, you know, God, I thank you for this gift, and I've shared this with you. So often we get, our, we get to the place where we start looking at the blessings of God as the normal rather than the blessing. And God sometimes will say, okay, you're taking my my blessings for granted. Let's take them away for a while. Make you depend on me. And God is wanting us to depend on him, even if we have all of our material needs being Met, we need to understand God's given it to us, and we need to go back and say, "God, thank you," because it gets our human nature gets in the way. You know, God, I kind of have everything under control. You know, God, I I think I can run my life for a while. It's it's going really well, and God's saying it's only going well because I've made it go well. And He says, "Okay, fine. You want to you want to see how good you can do without me? Then be without me." And interesting things start happening. Your your stuff breaks down. Your you're, you lose your job, you, you know, things, things all of a sudden pile up, a loan gets called in, you know, whatever it might be, all these things happen and you're going, oh, wow, God, I need your help. The only problem is we don't usually go, God, I need your help, until after we've wallowed around in the mud for a long time. And then we go, oh, God, uh, you know, I'm kind of dirty now. Would you like to help me? And God's saying, yeah, I'm going to help you even though you wallowed around in the mud, but you didn't have to wallow around in the mud if you'd have just called me before you got there. You know, and we've said this before, the old famous statement, you know, people will say, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray. And it should be, God, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to let you direct me. And once you've prayed, go ahead and keep trying things until God shows you the right way. But make sure prayer is the first thing that you do, not the, not the very last thing after you've wallowed around in the mud pit for a while and, and couldn't get out of it. Let him be the one that delivers you. And go to him quickly, you know, We we go through so much pain that we don't have to go through. All of us, myself included, go through so much pain that we don't have to go through because we don't turn to him and say, God, I just need your guidance. I need your guidance today, every single day. God, I need your guidance. God, what is it you want me to think about today from your word? God, who is it you want me to talk to today as I'm walking about my daily life? And we could look at this, I mean, Almost every one of us, unless you're a great hermit that just lives in your home completely, meets somebody each day. Now, if you're, if you're an introvert who stays at home, you might not meet some people, somebody some days, but you do go out eventually. On those days, ask God, who am I supposed to talk to? What am I supposed to say? God, give me words. Help me to minister in somebody's life. God, as I'm reading my word today, help me understand and find something to meditate on. Show me what it is you want me to learn for today. If we could live like that, maybe we could be Elijah or Enoch who just goes home without having to die. How would you like to have been Enoch? He only lived to be 365 years old on a day when everybody was living to be a 1,000. And it says, and he walked with God and was not. One day he went out walking with God, talking with God, and God said, just come on home. How would you like to be that close to God? Okay, you've only lived a 30 of your life, but come on, come on here, you're, you're, you're living so close to me, come on home. Yeah, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to do? Elijah didn't die. He walked with God and had learned to follow God and he was taken up in the chariot of fire and just taken up. The only two people we know of that have never died are those two people and uh Is there others? I don't believe so, but I can't say there isn't. All I know, I can tell you, two people have not died. (laughs) And Peter tells us, it's appointed unto men once to die. So every one of us should expect to die, unless the rapture comes. We'll all die. That's one absolute certainty in life is that you're going to die. Yeah. You can get away from your taxes if you're poor enough or, have a, or if you're rich enough to have a very good accountant, you can get away from taxes, which everybody says taxes are something you can't get away from. But everybody will die. Everybody who's ever been born, other than those two people, have died. And the guarantee in life is you can take a bet. Nobody would bet against you that at some point in your, your lifetime you're going to die. And if they're patient enough to wait, you will die. Now, you might be able to bet on what day you die and and not get it right, but we will all die, and God is saying, trust me. Verse 16, And the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up out of the city of palm trees with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies to the south of Arad, and they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they slew the Canaanites and inhabited Zephath, and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because there had irons of, uh, chariots of iron. And they, gave, and, he, and they gave Hebron unto Caleb, and Mo, as Moses said, and, and he expelled thence the three sons of Anak. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites and inhabited Jeru, that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwelt with the children of Benjamite in Jerusalem unto this day. All right, so we have more battles going on. The children of Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of the trees of the children of Judah and and in the wilderness and they lie there and they went and they dwelt among the people. Now these were the people of Midian who, who were with Moses. Remember Moses when he left Egypt, he crossed the desert and he met his father-in-law Jethro and helped him and, and stayed and lived with him for 40 years. And Jethro was a follower of the one God, didn't know the same, same thing of, as them. And he, Moses gets to marry Zipporah, uh, Jethro's daughter. They have at least two sons that we know of. And God says, and, and they apparently some of those people followed the children of Israel when they were delivered from the land of Egypt. And they they lived amongst the children of Judah. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother. So remember, they, they had said, Simeon, come with us and fight, and we'll and we'll turn around and fight with you. So they go with Simeon, and they, they slay the Canaanites that inhabited the area, and they destroyed that city of Zephath. And then they, Judah went up into Gaza with the coast thereof, to Ascalon and to the coast thereof, and Ekron with the coast thereof. Now, does anybody recognize those cities? Do you know what country those cities belong to? Those cities belong to the Philistines. So they're not going to hold them for long. Be- And all those coastal cities of Ascalon and Ekron are are the great Philistine cities. And we're going to see them again as we get further into into these books. You're going to see Ascalon and Escalon uh, because those are the major cities of Philistia. And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. All right. So we see our first kind of failure in this book. God had said he was going to give them victory in all their battles. And then they come against the chariots. Now, we don't think much of chariots in our day and age, but in that particular age, the chariot was an equivalent of our our tanks of today. They could drive through the, the enemy and and uh, didn't stop because the enemy was in front of them. The the horses would go right over the people. The chariot's wheels oftentimes had blades on the side of it, so they would chop people up as they're driving right past them. They were a formidable weapon, and Judah probably saw them and said, we can't take them, so we're, you know, gone into one battle, got beat, and said, we can't take them. They forgot the promises of God. And every time we forget the promises of God, we will be defeated. And this is why it's important for us to really keep track of what does God promise to us? What does he say he's going to do? You know, we are more than conquerors because Christ lives in us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now, I can do nothing in my own strength that's going to last, but with God, I can do all things. And this is what Judah forgot at this point. They got down in the valley and they started facing these chariots. Now, Remember what God did to the chariots of Egypt when they were chasing them. He took their wheels off. Let them drag and bounce around the ground a little bit. That slows a chariot down just a little bit. Now, to have their wheels taken off their, their chariot is a good way to slow them down. Uh, if you've ever tried to pull something without wheels over a rough, rough ground, you know how hard that would be. God was more than able to defeat the Canaanites in the valley in spite of their iron chariots. But we see already the people are starting to see with their eyes and not by faith. God, they've got chariots down there. We can't beat those. And at that point, God could have said, OK, what about the wall of Jericho? What about these other nations that are really strong? What about Egypt when you left them? You know, what about the chariots of Egypt? What about the plagues of Egypt when I destroyed Egypt? And God could have just gone back over all the things that had happened to them, but instead they're looking by sight and saying, God, we can't, we can't win this battle. Yeah. And this is after a long series of battles. Yeah. Seven years to, to take, take over the majority of them. Here they are a little bit thereafter, still winning battles. And all of a sudden they come, God, we can't beat these chariots. They, these chariots are too strong. We can't beat them. And God probably was saying, you're absolutely right. You can't, but I can And this is the one thing, anytime you get to a place where you say, God, I cannot do something, you're actually at the right spot if you'll just take it to the next step. God, I need you to be victorious in this uh, area. If instead of going, God, I need you, we go, God, I can't do this, so I'm just quitting, we've made the wrong decision. And, you know, so often we come to these crossroads in our life where we can choose to follow God and do what he says, or choose to follow the wrong answer, the wrong way, and wallow around in sin for a while. And that's usually what will happen. And most of the time, unfortunately, we choose the wrong way. Just sad to say, I know I have in my lifetime, I keep choosing the wrong way so often. And God's saying, just choose me, (laughs) choose me. And as we grow, hopefully we get better at choosing God. God, I just want you. I want whatever you want. God, I would really like to have this, but whatever you want. God, I'm facing this giant, and I just can't see how it's going to be conquered, but God, I'm going to trust in you. You Think about David and Goliath. Saul's entire army is quaking in their boots because Goliath is challenging the the people of Israel. That's bad enough, The challenging the people of Israel. And David gets there just at the time when Goliath defies God. And David is a man who, or actually a boy at the time, and says, this guy, this giant is defiling God. God is going to deliver him into whoever. You know, David's attitude was anybody could fight this giant. And that's what he's trying to get his brothers to do. Hey, one of you guys get out there and do this, you know, fight this giant? You know, he defied God. God will deliver him into our hands. And we don't ever want to find ourselves in a place where we're defying God because God will deliver us into the hands of somebody, and sometimes it can be very severe. And then the words, of course, that David is saying gets to the ears of the king and he says, okay, you, you want to you fight this giant? Nobody else is brave enough and you think you, you think you can do it? I don't understand why Saul even dared to ask David to fight Goliath. Because what was the results? If Goliath defeated the enemy, the war was over. Okay, whoever they went against Goliath, and if Goliath won, the battle was over, they surrendered. Now the agreement was that if Goliath lost, that they were going to surrender. They didn't surrender, they they ran off. They weren't going to surrender, and they got chased and defeated. Okay, they they had no honor, they did not follow their, their rules, they expected Israel to follow the rules. And it was very common in that day and age to, rather than put army against army, they would oftentimes pick, you know, one, two, three, four, a dozen men, and say, "Okay, you guys, you guys fight in the winter. The last one standing wins, and the other, the other army surrenders." That happened oftentimes during that, that day. It saved a lot of lives, especially if you didn't think you could win, you might take that chance. And David goes on and says, "You know, you've defiled God, and I'm going to, and I'm, and I am going to. God is going to deliver you into my hand." That is some bravery. David had some bravery because he trusted God. He had heard a person defile God and he stood up and said, God is going to deliver you into my hand. We don't ever need to be afraid of what the world's saying because what can the world do to us? At the the best, they can take our life and we get to go to heaven. That's the best thing they can do for us, take our life. As I used to tell everybody, the worst they can do is hurt us and we have to suffer. And if we suffer, we suffered for Christ, and that's good as well. Because the disciples kept saying, thank God that he found us worthy to suffer for him. And is that our attitude when we come against some, something that is ungodly? God, if I challenge this, they might make fun of me. They might, send, they, they, they might make me lose my job or, or might uh, throw me in prison. If that's what it takes to keep us from doing then we need to really look at our life and say, do I really want to stand with God? David was willing to go against a giant, and you got to picture this: an eight, nine and a half foot tall giant against little David. Who knows how big he was? He was a young teen, young young man, you know, probably just five, six, you know, five foot, you know, not very tall, going up against this giant, almost twice his size. And we see God saying, "It's yours, your faith." You have your faith in me. You're trusting in me. If David had said, "Good I can kill this giant Saul. Just let me at him. You know, there probably would not have been a victory there because he would have been trying to do it in his own strength. But he went up and said, this giant has defiled God. He must be put in his place. And you know, any one of the Israelites could have done that job to put the giant in his place because it was God who delivered the battle, not the person who stood in the, in the way. And this is very important for us. God uses the most unlikely people to bring great victory so often. God's grace is so wonderful for us, and we've got to really start to see his grace. Understand God's grace to us and apply that grace to others because that's what he's doing through all this. He's giving grace. And then we have this last little section, that. Children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. And the day, of course, they're talking about is probably Samuel. I mean, Samuel's probably the one that wrote this. And, and they held on to Jerusalem until David takes it as king. It's just long after Samuel's, Samuel's day. So as of the writing of this book, the Jebusites were living in Jerusalem and eventually took Jerusalem back away from Benjamin. It's also a picture of for us, we cannot give sin a place in our life. The children of Israel gave these nations that were against God a place in their in their life and eventually they were drugged down. And we've talked about this, you know. We cannot say I'm giving up some sin and then make provision to fall back into it. And I talk about the alcoholic who says, I'm giving up alcohol, but I'm gonna keep this bottle of whatever their favorite stuff is in the back closet, just in case I have a really bad day, I'll have it. Well, you know what? You're guaranteed to have a really bad day and need that provision in your, in your home that you provided for. Uh, it'd be the person who's given up on their uh, pornography and they keep a stack of the book you know, magazines in the back corner or they keep all the passwords to their website so that they, just in case they need it. They don't have to go through all the hassle of restarting things. They will fall. They will fall. And whatever your sin might be, if you make provision for the failure in it, you will fall. And God is saying, get rid of it all. Get rid of all of it and repent. Turn to him and say, I'm tired of this, God. Help me keep away from it and take away all of it. And, and don't make provisions for the failure. And many times we'll map off this little area and say, Satan, you had this little beachhead in my life because I'm going to keep that sin. It's just a little sin, you know. know, Little sins tend to grow really quick and fast and can take over our lives in a very fast way. And that was what ended up happening with, with Lot when he's being pulled out by the angels. He says, can we go over to that little town? It's just a little town. We can't make it to the mountain. And the angel said, go. I can't destroy it until you're safe. And that one little town in all the valley was saved, but it also gave a provision for sin to be built up. And we've got to be so careful about making room in our life for sin. God convicts you to get rid of whatever. I've got a friend who was convicted to get rid of any movie that used God's name in vain in his library. His library went from several hundred movies down to well under a hundred movies last I talked to him because he kept finding all kinds of movies that used God's name in vain. And he would destroy the movies and, and get rid of them. You know, now, he could, have, he could have justified, well, God, there's only one time that it's there. I can keep this movie. I like this movie. And it only uses your name wrong one time. You know, now, is everybody called to get rid of all the movies in their library that use God's name in vain? No, but he was, and he took it very seriously. You know, what is it that we're called by God to get out of our life that we've left a small thing in our life, a small thing that's going to come back to bite us just like the Jebusites did to Benjamin. At some point in the in the book, before David comes along, the Jebusites take back Jerusalem and take it away from Israel. And it was just a small, just a small thing for them to have sin in their camp. It was just a small thing to leave the Ninevites in the in the. Uh, the Canaanites and the Pezites in the, in the land, they, they weren't going to cause them any problems whatsoever, except for idolatry, except for con- you know, getting, getting strong and rebelling against them and taking and conquering them. The, we just read how they took Ekron and uh, Ascalon, and the, later on the Philistines are going to be the group that comes back and takes and beats them and puts, them into, puts Israel into captivity because of their sin. Just a small thing that they left some people alive in those cities to to be a thorn in their side. Just a small thing. Not a big deal. We didn't leave very many of them. Over time those small things grow. And we need to be very careful. You know, what is God convicting you of getting out of your life? And it's gonna be different for every single person. Whatever it is, get it out of your life and don't make provision for it to come back. Because no matter what you get rid of, God's got other things for you to get rid of. So don't don't sit there and try to leave a small thing in your life because it will make you fall. I've made that mistake in my own life. I have heard so many testimonies where somebody has made that mistake. They made a small provision, a small thing in their life, a small provision that, God, I'm just, I'm getting rid of this, God. Samuel, I, I, I did all that you told me. I kept just the best animals so we could sacrifice to you, and I kept the king alive so that we could make a public display of him, but I obeyed you, God. Except to these little small things. They're just they're little tiny things, God. And God took Saul's kingdom away from him. You know, does God always be that strong against us? Not usually, but he can. You know, what is the small thing in our life that's keeping us from being totally obedient to God or giving us the provision to fall? And it's so easy to fall if we make a provision for some small thing in our life to be the thing that trips us up. And this whole book that we're getting ready to study is making those small things, letting them trip them up. And then they will be put into judgment and then they will repent and they will be ruled for several years by some judge and then that judge will die and they'll be okay for a little while. But then the small things will trip them up and become big things again. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you, you help us to learn to get rid of all the small things in our life that you bring to our attention, so they don't trip us up. Help us to avoid the cycle of failing as a human being, that we can live in victory in your spirit, and not have to keep going through the cycle of falls and being delivered. The Lord, it is the common thing for man that we we will fall and need to be delivered. Lord, help us to quickly turn to you when that happens. But Lord, even more, give us the strength to get rid of the small things so it doesn't happen in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.